Doc Fermento Discovers the World Episode 30 Marin McKenna Swapping Germs This episode we're spending some time with Marin McKenna. I'll read uh, from one of her bios I found. She's a journalist and author specializing in infectious diseases, public health, global health, and food policy. She blogs for Wired. She writes for national magazines and a major medical journal. Her newest book, Superbug, is about the international epidemic of drug-resistant staff. And she wrote an earlier book called Beating Back the Devil, about the CDC's disease detectives. She teaches journalists how to write about science and scientists how to understand journalists. She's on Twitter. She has a Tumblr website. The book has a site, and you can check out her site over at Wired as well. I have a full list of links in the show notes. You could also go to Google and type in Marin McKenna, M-A-R-Y-N-M-C-K-E-N-N-A. I had a fantastic time talking to Marin about a very um, unusual subject, MRSA, um, a superbug. And I just love Marin's voice. Um, the content of her book and all her writing is, is fantastic, but for a podcast, you couldn't have a, a better guest than someone with a, a super sweet voice. Like She has like a broadcast quality voice. Um, it would be nice if she would uh, do the audio book version, read it herself. That would be cool. So I think that's it. I hope you enjoy this. Okay. So, hi, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> hi, Marin. <laughs> hey, um... I was looking at a couple of your bios, and I think I think my favorite part is that um, she finds emerging diseases strangely exciting. I do. I know that's really strange, right? <laughs> so I mean, that's people, good enough for me. People have hobbies, um, <laughs> and my hobby just happens to be bizarre disease organisms. You know, everybody needs to be fascinated with something. Well, you picked a good I, one. I I, I uh, was at a. Um, a a health conference a while ago and I found myself <laughs> standing off to the side um, while somebody was talking about something that obviously wasn't very interesting, having a conversation with a woman who's a very highly placed public health veterinarian, used to work in a couple of federal agencies and now works for an important non-governmental organization and we were basically swapping germs. She was like, my favorite is trichinosis oh my god i was like yeah trichinosis is cool but bayless ascaris is cooler wow <laughs> and we went back and forth this way for about 10 minutes because you know there's a lot of potential bugs in the world and then somebody near us shifted and and i looked over and this person had this look of utter horror, horror. on their face and yeah. i thought you know we must sound like like Jack the Ripper hobbyists or something like that. I, yeah. Um, and then I felt, I felt bad. Yeah, I felt like I was um, going to Skype um, 
Hannibal Lecter, I, <laughs> after reading your book today. <laughs> well, I'm very flattered that you read the book. I am not Hannibal Lecter. I do like fava beans, but um, I'm not much on liver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the book, I thought I was the perfect candidate uh, for this book because I don't get upset by these type of things. Or so I thought <laughs> until I read the book. <laughs> and w- while I'm reading, of course, uh, one of the kids gets a splinter in his finger and um, the wife's digging at it with a, an old pair of tweezers. Oh. And oh. I'm just like, stop everything. <laughs> We've got to do this the right way. So what you just experienced is like the, it, it is so predictable. It's so predictable that it actually has a name, um, which is, it's called medical student syndrome. Sometimes it's called first year syndrome, which is you read about something and then you think it's happening to you. It's like, do I have a headache or a brain tumor? Yep, right. <laughs> you suddenly see these um, these threats everywhere. And I, I have to say that happens to me too. I am not cavalier about this stuff. I actually take, I, I am the like, are you going to eat that? person among my friends and the would you just please just please put the if you're going to do that put the beer down kind of person um because because i've spent you know my professional life around this stuff (laughs) you can't see me but i'm like waving my hands around it's like oh right you know this stuff (laughs) this universe of bacteria (laughs) so tell me Marin, what what happened what what did we do with all of what did we do to With cause superbug? MRSA, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first thing to say is, so my book Superbug is about this one particular bacterium, which people call MRSA or MRSA, that stands for Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is just it's the drug-resistant version of Staph, and just about everybody knows about Staph and Staph infections. But the thing about MRSA is, it's really just kind of it. I picked it to write a book about partly because I kept on running into it in, in a story that I can tell you if you like, but but also because it's really just kind of the poster child in for, it's sort of like the face on the, the, um, the post office wall for an entire gang. It's like the gang leader of really bad resistant organisms, but it's not by any means the only one. And how the how they happened, why we've got this entire gang, is it's really kind of mostly our fault. Um, Antibiotic resistance is the unintended consequence of our attempting to beat back the the, the threat of infectious disease that has accompanied us for, you know, longer than we've been human. Um, Antibiotics come from compounds that bacteria make at each other to to kill um, you know to clear out living space for their descendants to, to kill other bacteria because they want to clear out living space for their descendants they want to compete for food sources we took those compounds that happen in that you know Darwinian but very natural process and we took them into the lab and we copied them and we juiced them up and we called them antibiotics well, because bacteria had been aiming these things at each other for millennia, they'd figured out how to defend themselves against each other. But we started using them in a much more intense and careless manner 
than bacteria ever did. And so we really shouldn't have been surprised if the, the way that bacteria responded was in a much more intense and crazy way than we could have, you know, than, than we predicted. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like um, a, a, a violation of coevolution. Absolutely. I mean, it's not, you know, we didn't create antibiotic resistance. Bacteria did that for each other. But what we did in the way that we sort of loaded up the system was to make it much worse. You know, when, when penicillin was first identified, penicillin actually first appears on the scene as far as we know, or at least is first, first spotted and named in 1928. Alexander Fleming, a Scottish bacteriologist, is working in his laboratory, and because it's in the United Kingdom and they don't, didn't have air conditioning there at the time, he's left a window open for ventilation, and he's actually working on staff, and he's got a bunch of glass petri dishes of staff, and something blows in the window, and when he goes back to look at those dishes a couple of weeks later... Um, a gel that should have been just covered with staff. They actually call it a lawn, just like a lawn of grass because it's so tightly packed. Instead of being just this one smooth coat of staff, it was polka dot because the what had blown in the window was penicillium mold and it had landed on the staff and was killing it in these little zones of exclusion. So Fleming got the Nobel Prize for Medicine for that in 1945, which was about two years after penicillin started to be used broadly as a drug. And he knew what was going to happen. He says in his Nobel Prize speech, we are going to misuse these things. We're going to use them too much. We're going to use them in the wrong way. And what's going to happen is the bacteria are going to become resistant. And as far as I can tell, what we did in response to that warning was basically go, oh, how nice, Alex, take your prize and sit down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but two years later, by 1947, penicillin-resistant staph was spreading around the globe. It, it starts in Australia. It, it shows up in the U.S. in 1951. By 1953, the American Medical Association and the entire sort of health establishment of the U.S. at the time are utterly panicked about it. They have this summit meeting at, in Cleveland because Case Western Reserve University happened to have a big staff research unit. And when you read the archives of that meeting, they just all sound like they have no idea how to put the brakes on what's happening. But what's happening is that antibiotic resistance has roared out of control because people used penicillin so enthusiastically just as Fleming had warned them they were going to do. They just, they put it in everything. They used it for everything. They didn't reserve it for the really, truly life-threatening things. And then when, when they realized that was happening, that resistance was emerging because of their over-enthusiastic, heedless use, disrupting that balance that you talked about, what we started to do was just come up with newer drugs. Well, bacteria have a lot more practice at coming up with defenses than we have at coming up with drugs. And so every t- it's like a you know microbiological version of whack-a-mole. <laughs> every time yeah. we came up with something, they'd be like, "Oh, but we're over here. Oh, but we're over there." Yeah, I've kind of like I've kind of thought of bacteria as um say a plant that can run fast. Right. It's like, sort of like They always like- say, you know, plants can't plants can't run away, so they have to defend themselves. Well, but there are plants that can, like bamboo. If you ever make the mistake of, of um, 
of planting bamboo in a garden. You know, bamboo spreads by runners under the ground and it comes up everywhere. And there is no better way to alienate your neighbors than to plant bamboo <laughs> or <laughs> ivy. You know, ivy, if you see ivy like all over the ground and, mm-hmm. and mantling trees, it's the sign of an ecosystem under stress. It's the sign that something's gotten out of balance. And what we did with antibiotics and and along with that with our semi-obsessional sort of pursuit of a clean lifestyle you know of of and of anti antibacterial this and that soaps and sprays and um, toys and cutting boards and car dashboards and things is we we forgot that we are beings living in a microbial world and and what we really ourselves are are just you know collections of microbes mm-hmm. that happen to be gathered around a body um you know there's more bacteria living within us than there are actually cells in our bodies mm-hmm. and and we should have thought earlier on that we have to find a way to live in balance with that and not keep you know banging on one end of the seesaw but that's what we did and and antibiotic resistance was the result yeah so if from one aspect, it seems um, we always want to blame the overuse of antibiotics. And yet when we look at the farm, wasn't it just the slow, subtle use of antibiotics that created its own unique problem? So you can say, you know, when we say overuse, I mean, you could interpret that in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, it's, I, think, I tend to think of it as sort of inappropriate use, okay. really. Um, that makes sense. Um, I mean, you could overuse, you could use that term in the sense of when you think, particularly in agriculture, just in volumes, you know, it's pretty well, there's a, 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 there's a statistic you hear a lot, which is, I think is pretty well supported, which is that 80% of the antibiotics that are sold in the United States in any given year are given to animals, not to humans. And something like at least 90%, maybe 95% of that 80% goes into healthy animals. So it's not treating animals for disease. So in in that sense of just, you know, volume, yeah, that's overuse. But the thing that I think is more, that I think is more important to think about, the, the frame in which I try to think about it, is uh, just inappropriate use, which covers a really broad range. For instance, if, let's say, you, you know, your kid wakes up with uh, an, a sore ear, and you, it feels like an ear infection. Well, an ear infection might be might be bacteria, it might be viral, it might be something that needs antibiotics, or it might be something that is going to take care of itself if you just give your kid a couple of days of sort of a couple of low energy days at home. But to do that, you have to stay home with your child. If you have the kind of job where you don't get sick leave and if you don't show up, you're going to lose your job, then you are likely to go, or if you have the kind of job where you have to put your child in daycare and to get your child into gay- daycare, they have to be on an, a, a, you know, a prescription. Either way, you're going to go and you're going to ask for a prescription whether or not your child actually needs antibiotics as opposed to just three days in bed. That's inappropriate use even though the dose that you get might not be wildly out of scale, mm-hmm. it might not technically be overuse in that sense, but you're using it in the wrong way. You're using antibiotics, this precious resource, for something that we really shouldn't have used it for. And to me, that whole 
that that whole agricultural use falls under that same category. One of the ways that we use antibiotics in agriculture now is that animals animals that are being raised for meat get micro doses of antibiotics mostly in their food occasionally in water but mostly in food because there's something about taking antibiotics that allows animals to accumulate mass faster to put on muscle faster it's probably because the antibiotics do something to suppress something in their microbiome or to suppress some kind of minor infections mm-hmm. anyway when they eat then they get they they have better what's called feed efficiency they get more nutrients out of the food they're eating and therefore they pack on muscle mass faster which if you are if you're doing the kind of agriculture where you just want to like move things to market as soon as possible you know in a pure economic sense that's a good goal because you're moving your widgets through the the um, production process faster but but those animals are never sick and so so once again, you know, we're using antibiotics for the thing that bacteria did not make them up for. <laughs> you know, it's it's not to it's not to kill something that's making an organism ill. It's it's for some other purpose. That to me is it's kind of like um, as well. Any jar of household cleaner that says illegal to use in an inappropriate manner. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Here, hold my beer. Watch this. Yeah, exactly. All right, Marin, let's talk about um, some of the less appealing parts of this MRSA story. Um, the human element, um, some of the things you covered in the book, some of the stories of uh, personal tragedies and how it affects families. If we could just spend at least a few minutes on that and give some people some ideas of what you're talking about in the book. Yeah, sure. So it's funny. Um, you know, MRSA has had a kind of couple of overlapping epidemics. I think when I started working on this book, which was back in about, oh, and I I first really started looking at MRSA in about 2003, and I started really working on the book in about 2006, and it was published in 2010. Um, Most people, I think, if they knew the, the acronym MRSA at all, they thought of it as something that happened to people in hospitals. And that an antibiotic resistant infection would attack someone who's sick in a hospital from a bacteria's point of view makes a lot of sense because if you think about it someone who's in the hospital first is sick to begin with so they're kind of debilitated second they're probably in bed and they kind of can't get away from from infection risks coming at them from other people who touch them from things floating through the air Um, they've also got a lot of of interruptions in the the immune barrier of their skin, which is, you know, the, the skin is a fantastic thing for defending us against the rest of the world, but people who are in, especially in an ICU, they've got, you know, they've got catheters going into their veins, they've got tubes going down their throats, um, and all of those are portals through which infection can enter. And then they're probably, you know, they're probably getting a lot of other drugs and antibiotics, which means that their immune system is already disrupted. So, People in an ICU or in a hospital, they're a sweet target for bacteria. And, and, and I think if anyone thought about what MRSA did, the fact that somebody in a hospital got MRSA, even though it's, it shouldn't happen and it's a tragedy, it made sense. But what happened that a lot of people didn't notice is that, so MRSA becomes a hospital organism 
1961. It emerges in response to the invention of the drug methicillin, which is the, the M in MRSA, and that comes on the market in 1960. But in the mid-1990s, some doctors in Chicago started to notice that they were seeing kids who had MRSA infections, <clears throat> and these kids had never been in the hospital. In fact, where they saw these kids was when they came into the emergency room really sick. And the reason that's significant is that the emergency room is a, a door to the hospital that only swings one way. You are always in the ER first, and then you go elsewhere in the hospital if you're sick enough. You're never in the hospital first, and then go down to the ER. So if you're in the ER, by definition, you haven't been hospitalized for a while. And yet these kids had what everybody thought was a hospital infection. It just didn't make any sense. And what those, those smart doctors figured out after a couple of months of study was that there was a new kind of MRSA and it was spreading just in the community. It didn't have anything to do with hospitalization. The reason why that was important is because some of those infections, including in the kids who first showed up in that ER, were really serious. I mean, now I think if you say to someone, oh, a MRSA infection, they'll just think of a staph infection, just a, a little sort of skin infection. But MRSA can cause major infections of the, of the muscle, of the bone. It causes pneumonia that just kind of liquefies lung tissue. It causes flesh-eating disease. Um, it can get into the brain. It's really an ugly bug. And the fact that it's ugly is kind of unpredictable. Uh, no one really knows why those particular cases happen. And as I was reporting this book, there's, um, I did about 200 interviews for the book, and about 100 of them were with um, either victims or family members of people who didn't survive or who were kids who were kind of too young to talk for themselves. What I heard time and time again was that it just kind of came out of nowhere. You know, a kid is playing football, gets tackled, scrapes his elbow. Four days later, he's in the ICU fighting for his life. A kid develops um, a, a flu infection, just an everyday sort of like, you know, winter flu. And it gets, MRSA gets into his lungs because the flu has roughed them up. And then he's in the ICU fighting for his life and dies. This happens over and over again. And when I talked to those, those families, what they said so many times was, we'd kind of heard from, of MRSA, we had no idea it could do this. Yeah, <clears throat> and when you say do this, it is absolutely, profoundly devastating, the stories in the book. I, I, was, I was completely blown away. Like you said, I had thought of something like abscesses or, or something simple, skin lesion or something. Right. But so, you know, the, I mean, the story that still breaks my heart um, that I can, when I talk about this in, you know, the book in public or tell these stories, I can barely tell the story without crying, is a kid named Carlos Don, Don, Carlos Don, his family's Latino, um, who lived outside San Diego with his folks. And he was in sixth grade. And he went up, he went on a winter camping trip. <clears throat> there's, the, you know, there's not much winter in San Diego, but the kids like to go camping. And so the schools take them in the winter rather than in the summer because it's really dry and a really a fire risk in the hills in the summer. And he comes back and he looks a little sort of shaky and his folks think he has the flu and they take him to a little dock in the box clinic and they say, yeah, you know, flu bronchitis, something like that. Just take him home, put him on the couch, give him a Gatorade. He'll be fine. And they took him home 
and um, within a couple of hours he was hallucinating and they took him to back to the clinic which immediately sent him to the the top flight tertiary care children's hospital in San Diego and he never came home he went straight to the ICU he was uh, there for a couple of weeks he was on life support for two weeks um, his folks kept him on life support as long as they could because they just they would have taken him home no matter what they just wanted him to survive but the this MRSA infection destroyed his lungs just the, hmm. the technical term is necrotizing pneumonia um, it it kills the tissue it liquefies it and sloughs it away and it leaves the lung looking like Swiss cheese which means you know you can't breathe you can't get oxygen into your system and because he couldn't even with all the the advanced life support he was on he just slowly lost all the rest of his body his his arms withered and died his legs withered and died and his parents said that's okay we'll take him home anyway we don't care and then his you know his major organs started to fail and eventually his parents realized they had to let him go and um they did just a couple of days before his 13th birthday and that was just completely random just mm -hmm. swooping out of nowhere to like a lightning strike to take their son and the th the really sad thing about carlos's story is that it's that's not the only time that's happened MRSA necrotizing pneumonia happens every year it's random and rare enough that we don't hear about very many cases but the, the CDC tries to keep records on it which is very difficult because it's it's not what's called a reportable disease that means that when a doctor sees a case he doesn't have, he or she doesn't have to tell anybody that they've seen it so you only kind of hear about it they only kind of hear about it at, at the Centers for Disease Control if if someone thinks to tell them but they get anywhere from 50 to more than 100 reports of this every year. And we just tend to hear about them if, you know, some local news station or website covers that a child in their area has died. But it's not that unusual. You, you would think that this would be the, the, the number one reported thing. Like, this should be mandatory to be reported. It would be as if a doctor didn't report zombies in his emergency room. <laughs> right. And you'd think also that it would be... Um, you know, it would be more of, that, more of a priority. I mean, there, there's a lot of things in our healthcare system that we don't treat as priorities that maybe ought to be. But we tend to take horrible things happening to children pretty seriously because, you know, we think of kids as, you know, sort of innocent beings that deserve a break, that don't, that when, when mm -hmm. things swoop down out of nowhere to kill children, we generally want to respond. And the, the fact that they're the symbol of the future. Right, right, right. So, but the thing, the only thing that really would fix this, well, two things. First, it seems that um, that kids tend to get this horrible MRSA pneumonia when they have had flu. So one thing people can do is to make sure that their kids get flu shots. But that's something really disputed. You know, a lot of people don't trust flu shots. I, I myself get a flu shot every year. I think flu shots are trustworthy, but I know there's a lot of disbelief in them out there. The second is that you could come up with a MRSA vaccine, but it, that turns out to be really hard. Um, people have been trying for at least two decades now, and MRSA, in the same way that it's that it's defended it, uh, itself against our immune systems for all these years, turns out to be really good at defending itself against the potential prevention of a vaccine as well. It's a very tricky bug. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be in line for the vaccine myself, to be honest. Well, the interesting thing with things like this, these things that are sort of seem so rare and random that you, um, you know, they feel like a lightning strike, is that it, it never seems like a possibility until it happens. And then it's too late. Sure. It's kind of the reason we buy insurance. Right, exactly. So, I mean, in a way, you can think of vaccines as insurance. Um, and, and the question, you know, just as we pay money for insurance is, do you want to, do you want to pay the, the cost, the non-monetary costs of taking a vaccine? Myself, I'm one of the most vaccinated people on the planet because I've done a lot of, you know, reporting in scary places like, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and, um, you know, Southeast Asia and, and during epidemics and so forth. So I have no issues with vaccines, but I, I know there are people who think of them differently than I do. Yeah, sure. Um, I know, for instance, I have just um, regarding your book, um, I have some friends that work in the medical community Mm -hmm. and uh, they basically, I would tell them about the book and, you know, they don't, they don't want to read the book because they're stuck in that community and they don't want to, they don't want to add any fear or worry upon themselves. Do you have something to say to that? Um, Well, I completely respect their point of view. (laughs) Um, you know, I understand how when you are head down in something something really emotionally taxing, you don't necessarily want to hear about it. You know, I don't know that EMTs go home and watch, or like, you know, maybe detectives don't go home and watch CSI or, mm-hmm. or, or pathologists. Um, well, I, that's different because then maybe that's fun, lighthearted, and pretend. Um, but it's pretty but your tr- book's no pretend. <laughs> yeah, my book is sadly not. Every every person, my book is is a hundred percent true to life. Every person in it, who everyone in the book, everything happened. Everything, all of my accounts were fact checked. They're all footnoted. Everyone appears under their real name. Right. There's there's no one in the book who's like I do not you know asked not to be named or anything like that. It's it's all it it's all there. It's all verifiable. Um, but. You know, when I when my agent and I were taking this book idea around publishing, um, a num- we ran into a number of people who said, this is a really important story. Man, I really hope this book sells, but I'm not going to buy it because, <laughs> because somebody in my family had MRSA and they were really sick and I just can't go through that again. Ooh, so I wish you luck, yeah. but I don't want to hear any more about this myself. So, so... You know, I respect that. You know, everyone has to sort of come to their own um, kind of accommodation with how much death and destruction you want to hear about on a daily basis. As, as you know, somebody who's kind of spent my professional life as scary disease girl, I have a high tolerance for death and destruction, but I, but I don't expect everybody else to share my point of view. <laughs> sure. So, so far we've been talking a little bit about some isolated um, incidents, incidences, um, but on, on the cover of your book, you know, um, it says this was, you know, disregarded by medicine and this may be the most frightening epidemic since AIDS. How does it become epidemic? Well, MRSA is an epidemic. Um, MRSA is an epidemic because it just happens so much. I mean, the technical definition of an epidemic is, um, an, an increase in a particular disease above just kind of what's expected. Like if you know how often a disease is going to happen, um, and you can make predictions about how it's about 
what it should look like in the future. And then you get a spike beyond that. That's an epidemic. It's actually a fairly mushy concept. Um, MRSA is unquestionably an epidemic because it just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, the, the thing that is so interesting about MRSA is that um, it happens so much more than we think it does. You know, there's something like 19,000 deaths a year from it. There's hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations. Um, we don't have a national registry for when MRSA happens. It, as I said, it's not a mm -hmm. report of disease. But based on some pretty smart statistical work done at um, University of California, San Diego. No, I'm sorry, University of California, San Francisco. Um, it probably causes at least 7 million doctor and ER visits every year. That's massive. <laughs> that's that's yeah. huge. And that the guy who said to me, um, the quote, this quote is actually in the book, this is the biggest epidemic since AIDS. He knew what he was talking about because he was at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, when AIDS started back in the early 80s. He treated the earliest people. He saw what AIDS was like back when we didn't have drugs that could control it. And it just went through people like, you know, the swath of the Grim Reaper. And, and that, those kind of numbers, those are the kind of numbers that, um, that MRSA now, MRSA now, you know, it kills more mm -hmm. people in the U.S. any, any year than HIV does. Um, it's really significant. And most people don't, if, you know, they think of it as a thing in hospitals or they think of it as just, um, just, skin infections that you get over yeah so let's can we move into that we have the hospital version we have the community version we can cover that shortly and then there's a new version right so there's kind of three overlapping epidemics there's the hospital version then there's the community version and what that means when when medicine says community what it really means is anything outside the walls of a hospital or a health, another healthcare institution like a nursing home or a long-term care home so the community epidemic takes in everything from just those like spider bite kind of bumps that you get to the kind of necrotizing pneumonia that killed Carlos Don. And then the third epidemic is the epidemic in animals, which emerges in 2004 in the Netherlands and moves through Europe and then moves to Canada and then to the United States. Weirdly, it seems to happen mostly in pigs. And it starts spreading first via first from from pigs, then to people who work on farms, and then particularly in the you know sort of closer knit social networks in Europe, it spreads into the rest of society there, um, and and shows up in hospital patients and shows up in people who have no connection with agriculture. That's also been recorded in Canada. Um, in the U.S., we have not seen yet any or many significant infections with the, what's known as pig MRSA or livestock MRSA. Are these, is this an indictment against um, industrial meat production, CAFOs, or is this even in a mom-and-pop Well, operation? the interesting thing is, so livestock MRSA starts in the Netherlands. The Netherlands happens to have the, among the tightest controls on antibiotic use in humans anywhere in Europe. I mean, they're, they're really, really tough on it. But for some weird reason, they're incredibly liberal in the way they use antibiotics in agriculture. Hmm. And the Netherlands has had this fairly recent conversion, particularly in pig farming, from 
you know, sort of cute small family farms. I mean, I think if, you know, if people think of Holland, they get this image of, you know, smiling little family farm and people in wooden shoes and lacy hats and happy smiling pigs. But in fact, Holland now has big intensive production agriculture, just like we do here in the United States, big CAFOs. And in Holland, they use more antibiotics in agriculture, particularly in pigs, than anywhere else in the European Union. It's really strange why they're human and That animal. is strange and bizarre behavior. It's yeah. very odd. So because they were so tough about restricting antibiotic use in humans, they, they had very little MRSA among people. They'd really, really kept it down. Therefore, when MRSA started to emerge in pigs, there was a sort of open ecological niche for it to move into. So there was, it was as though there was a place in people for that infection to go that maybe doesn't exist in the United States because we have so much community MRSA here. We're, we're sort of the poster childs of the world for community MRSA. We have the worst epidemic anywhere. And it may be that, that the places where livestock MRSA might have gone in the U.S., that real estate was already kind of filled up. But I didn't answer your question. So, yeah, so this is, it's pretty clear that this was tied, its initial emergence was tied to industrial-scale agriculture. And here's mm -hmm. how we know. MRSA has always had this distinctive antibiotic resistance pattern. When we say that, um, that staph became resistant to the drug methicillin, Methicillin was a, a, a semi-synthetic penicillin that was that pharma came up with when staph became resistant to penicillin itself back in the 1940s and early 50s. So what they did to create methicillin was they made um, a, a, a synthetic change in the natural penicillin molecule. Uh, and that particular change was then copied by so many drugs that were made afterwards. So there's not just several different drugs, but actually several different families of antibiotics, each with multiple drugs in them, that at their heart all had the same particular molecular arrangement. So when staff learned to resist methicillin, it's the, the original drug, which it did very quickly in 1961, it, it then gained the ability to protect itself against all these other drugs as well. But all those other drugs all belong to several distinct families. Then you go over to the Netherlands to where they're giving all these antibiotics to pigs in, in confinement agriculture. The drugs they're giving to pigs are not in any of those categories that methicillin-resistant staph is already resistant to, that MRSA is already resistant to. What they particularly give the pigs is the drug tetracycline. Now, even in the United States, we've never really given tetracycline against MRSA. And therefore, MRSA never had the opportunity to become resistant to it. Because what happens is you, you, know, you, you use the drug against the bacterium, the bacterium defends itself, and the bacterium develops resistance. So, so in the United States, MRSA is not resistant to tetracycline. And they had almost no MRSA in the Netherlands. But then suddenly they have MRSA in pigs in the Netherlands. And that particular new strain is resistant to tetracycline. So that was like a big neon arrow pointing back at the use of tetracycline on pig farms. 
because that's the only place where it was being used. Wow, yeah. It wasn't being used against MRSA, at Mer- against MRSA in humans because they had no MRSA in the Netherlands in humans. They only had it in pigs, and they gave tetracycline, and the MRSA saw the tetracycline and developed resistance against it. So then it started spreading into, into people from there. But it's really just not very much disputed. I mean, there's really no way to dispute that agricultural use of antibiotics had an impact on the evolution of MRSA in pigs in the Netherlands that developed this new strain. And the thing that's, that is so interesting but troubling about that is that this particular strain, this livestock MRSA, as it's called, or, you know, it's called livestock-associated MRSA, which is LA MRSA, or pig MRSA, or some people call it MRSA ST398, which indicates its results in a particular test. As it started to spread across Europe, you know, first in pigs, then in pig farmers, then in people who had nothing to do with pigs. They found it in retail meat. Um, they found it in um, pigs and pig farmers in Canada. They found it in um, surgery, surgical patients in Canada. And they found it also in pigs and pig farmers here in the United States, but not very much because we haven't looked for it. The distinctive signature has always been that tetracycline resistance. It just hangs on to that. So when you see that, you know that it's the livestock strain, right, not right. the hospital strain, not the community strain, but this third strain that emerged because of the influence of what we do in agriculture. I see. And so we're, is this something that we're, how does this work in the United States? Um, the communal, communal um, strains so and the, the hospital strain in the U.S. The, specifically. Yeah, the, we don't have that much livestock MRSA as far as we know, though, to be fair, we don't really look for it. I mean, and you can see why, right? We have a lot of industrial agriculture in the United States. Um, it, it's not, I, I am not suggesting that anyone is covering things up, but you don't have to cover things up if you just don't look for it. And we don't have in the United States very good surveillance at all in agriculture of any of the results of the way that we use antibiotics. You know, just as antibiotic resistance is not a reportable disease in humans for the most part, it's, it's not a reportable disease in animals either. So, so that leaves us looking at just sort of like where's the hospital epidemic and where's the community epidemic. And the hospital epidemic, it's still going on. It, it is not over. Mm-hmm. It's pretty well defined. You know, it happens to people who are are in hospitals who are kind of under assault because they're very sick. They're getting a lot of drugs. They're getting a lot of stuff put into their bodies. Um, it's the community epidemic over the past couple of decades that's really just kind of boomed out of what anybody would have expected. I mean, the, the first, the, that first rash of cases in Chicago in the late 90s, there were 25 of them. And now we may have, you know, potentially 7 million cases a year. Um, people have tried to get a handle on this. Several states, a number of states actually at this point, have passed laws that um, require MRSA to MRSA specifically, to be a reportable condition, not other antibiotic resistance. And certain healthcare systems have started really closely tracking MRSA in their hospitals, in some cases because states have forced them to. Um, But, you know, we still don't have a really good sense of where that epidemic is going. Because hospital MRSA can be just so devastating, generally speaking, 
healthcare has started to tighten up on its use of antibiotics and its its insufficient attention to infection control. And as a result, healthcare-associated infections, which are mostly resistant infections, are kind of either trending down or they're at least kind of holding the line on them. So to that extent that you know sort of the struggle against MRSA is kind of making it better for all things because they're because people are working on this harder yeah and um for the for the general public and just people that aren't in the hospital don't work in the hospital hopefully never end up in one there are some specific places and areas and behaviors that uh, increase your the chances of you Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. The the there are certain things that you do or certain places where you can sort of put yourself that increase your risk. And all of them make sense if you think about, you know, sort of the ecology of MRSA. So MRSA is a bug. Staph is a bug that likes to that likes to live on our skin. Now there are other bacteria that that live in us and on us that like the insides of our bodies. Like E. coli lives in our guts, for instance. But MRSA likes our skin. And the, the sort of like the front of our noses, just inside our nostrils, there's something about that particular spot in terms of the, the, the like mineral balance and the amount of dampness that MRSA just loves. And then some of the forms of community MRSA also like other warm, damp, salty places on our bodies. For some reason, staff really like salt. So the things you can do or the places you can go that inadvertently make you more more vulnerable to MRSA turn out to be places where you're exposing your skin to it or where you're kind of making yourself warm and damp and salty. And here are some examples. <laughs> so um, MRSA really, because MRSA is a skin bacterium, it really likes, um, it, it likes to, it, it's, it does well in places where you're going to have contact with other people's skin. So places that are crowded, like a jail, or a military barracks, or um, a locker room, particularly a locker room of you know in people where where people have been getting warm and damp and salty. There's been a real big bloom of MRSA cases among pro athletes, for instance. Some football teams, in particular, and basketball teams, have really struggled with it, um, and that's because MRSA is a skin bacterium, and you get warm and damp and salty working out, and therefore you make um, your skin more favorable to the growth of MRSA. The other thing that happens is that staph's a bacterium that that exists in clumps. They're called colonies, and you have to have a certain count of those clumps, those colonies, on on your skin or or in a place on your body to start an infection. It, it's not just one single cell that starts an infection. Well, the colonies, you know, you get the colonies get more numerous when they get a chance to grow. And they get a chance to grow when you make yourself warm and damp and salty or when you don't remove them regularly. In other words, when you don't wash them off. So if you're in a place where you you don't have good hygiene or you're not allowed to have good hygiene, that also makes you vulnerable to MRSA. And another example is a jail. Jails are now jails and prisons are now so overcrowded because of the war on drugs, largely, that um, jails where somebody used to be guaranteed a shower like every two days, somebody might only get one once a week now, or where where prison laundry used to guarantee them a, a you know a new jumpsuit 
uh, twice a week and fresh underwear every day, they might now get a, a jumpsuit once a week and fresh underwear only every other day. So when your hygiene is imperfect, when you can't wash the staff off your skin, then your chances of staff growing enough to start an infection get greater. So the Centers for Disease Control codified all this in, in what they call, um, the, I think it's the five C's, C like Charlie, and it's crowding, um, contact, uh, cleanliness, um, I'm now going to forget the others. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, but they all start with C. They're on the web. <laughs> yeah, so this um, goes into, uh, like you said, with sports, um, high school sports and teenage sports. So the interesting thing about, I, you know, I, I think people have kind of begun to get used to hearing about MRSA in the context of professional sports. Because there's a couple of teams that have really struggled with it. And just in the past year or two, there have been, um, there was, in college basketball, for instance, it's been a real problem. There was uh, a player for University of North Carolina who um, really struggled with it. Kenny George, I think was his name. And he, he had a really bad infection that, that um, temporarily derailed his, his athletic career. And that's happened to a number of football players as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm here in Cleveland and... I'm not a big sports guy, but I know Joe, Joe Jerovicious and LaCharles Bentley both um, went through horrible experiences with that. At right, right, right. I remember hearing that. And um, Brandon Noble, who used to play for the Redskins, he had a MRSA knee infection that eventually, essentially ended his pro career. I think he's now a, a coach uh, instead. He's not an active player. So, But people have tended not to think about um, sports in a non-pro setting or non-college setting. But it turns out that kids are really, kids who just play school sports are really quite vulnerable to this. In fact, they may be vor more vulnerable. And the reason is because if you think of a pro athlete, they come, come off the field, they're going straight into the locker room, they're, you know, they're, they're going into the shower, they're being thrown into the, you know, the whirlpool or the ice bath or something like that. People are paying attention to them right away, um, getting them, you know, the, the finely tuned machine that is a professional athlete, they're getting the machine tuned up again. Kids who just play sports at school, um, they may just, you know, they'll, they'll go out for practice afterward and then maybe they'll go home or maybe they'll hang out. But no one makes kids anymore shower after sports at school or after working out. It used to be the case that they did, but that seems to have kind of gone out of the culture somewhere in the 80s or 90s. So that yeah, well, for many of us, the, the greatest nightmare of our childhoods was having to shower. <laughs> having to shower. <laughs> so, right. So no one ever wanted to do it, right? So why, you know, so as soon as we got the opportunity not to, we all went, yeah, I'm not doing that. Are you kidding? <laughs> no way. But it turns out that it may make us vulnerable to infections like this because if you, so you've got everybody's, you know, a certain percentage of people have staph on their skin all the time. It, it just stays there and it doesn't always make them sick. It just likes to hang out. Yeah. But, so what kind of numbers are we talking about? How many people have staph? So about a third of the population walks around all the time with regular drug-sensitive staff on them. That, that's a, that state of, of maintaining staff on your skin is called colonization, just like the clumps are called colonies. And colonization is, a, is one of those mysteries of, of bacteriology, why um, that bug can live in stasis with us and not make us sick. 
for some people, colonization lasts their lives. For some other people, it only lasts a couple of months or a couple of weeks. And we're still not really sure why that is. But there are people who just walk around with staff and, and it doesn't make them sick unless they get, a, you know, a break or an interruption or a cut in their skin. Then it gets into their bloodstreams and then it's a totally different story. But if you happen to be somebody who's more vulnerable to staff, if you're one of those people who you got staff on your skin and it does cause an infection, what if you bump it, you know, what if you crash in a tackle into somebody who's carrying staff and they transfer it to you and you're one of the people more vulnerable to it? So then, and then, you know, you're working out. So you've made yourself warm and damp and salty staff's preferred environment. And so it starts to grow on your skin. If you don't go and shower or otherwise wash those colonies off, knock down the population, then it gets faster to to the size where it could start an infection. And if you're a vulnerable person, that's really all it takes. So, you know, every high schooler and like middle schooler is going to hate me for saying this, but... But one of the things we could do to protect children against really serious staph infections is we could make them shower after sports again in some way that would make everybody not hate us. But it really, it's, it doesn't just make kids not sweaty and not smelly. It could protect their lives. Yeah, this is a health and safety issue for sure. I can understand um getting a little old school, <laughs> getting back into that. You know, it seems uh, grandma and these crotchety old people, <laughs> they were always right. <laughs> it's true. It, I mean, just like, you know, your grandmother told you, um, you know, at least my grandmother was always like, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And you're like, oh, so boring. But it turns out that washing your hands is another one of those things that you could do to protect yourself against infections like MRSA and other infections as well. And the reason is because our hands are the bridge between the yucky stuff in the environment and the parts of our bodies that are particularly vulnerable to infection. Because it's our hands that we, you know, if you ever just, it, it's almost impossible to do this because you'll just gross yourself out too much. But try someday to just keep track of how many times you touch your face. <laughs> it will make you crazy. You know, <laughs> like tug at our eyes. We like, you know, we, we like brush our noses. We touch our mouths. Yeah, I've actually, I've actually done this and paid attention to that. And it, yeah, <laughs> it's not good. When we do that, what we're doing is our fingers are transferring all the stuff from the environment to the the places in our bodies where um, where an infection can easily more easily take hold, which is our mucous membranes. Oh, so the, if you're a nose picker, you're double trouble. Yes, exactly, because MRSA hangs out in your nose, right? So, right, so the um, you know the wet the wet soft tissues around our eyes, on the inside of our noses, on the inside of our mouths. Those are more vulnerable to the attack of bacteria because they're just kind of not as tough as our truly outside skin. That's the it's the skin that's the the tissue that sort of is the border between the inside and outside of our bodies. So, if you wash your hands a lot, like your grandmother told you to do, then you're going to be protecting yourself against, or you're going to be reducing the chances of transporting the bad stuff to the vulnerable tissues on your body. Okay, I have to yeah, and this mechanism is pretty simple. It's not yeah. um, anything complex. You don't need special soaps or anything. It, it's just the simple mechanism of reducing the population That's right. because and of the flow of water. I, that's and, why just plain ordinary soap is okay, why we don't have to have these mm -hmm. hyper-super-duper antibacterial this and that. Because what soap does is... 
it actually, through chemical action, it lifts stuff off our skin and washes it away. Right. These um, are the surfactants, right? Exactly. Surfactants break the bond mm-hmm. to our, um, to our, between the stuff and our skin. And then and fr- the friction of rubbing your hands together moves stuff away and then rinsing takes it all the way off. So, um, so that's why just plain ordinary soap is okay. And you don't need a highly antibacterial. In fact, in my view, highly antibacterial things that say we kill 99.99% mm-hmm. of things is a bad thing because th- what they are doing in a, in a weaker chemical form is what antibiotics do. They're interfering in the action of, of bacteria in the same kind of key and lock sort of fashion that antibiotics do. And what bacteria learn to do to protect themselves against antibiotics or is essentially to change the lock so the key can't fit anymore. Mm-hmm. And that they do the same thing with antibacterial compounds. The, the leading antibacterial compound, which is called triclosan, um, bacteria are already becoming resistant to it. Hmm. So this, people, you know, people buy these things because they think, oh, if a little is good, a lot is better. If I need to protect my family by staying clean, then I will make sure they are hyper duper, you know, super yeah. duper. But we don't need that. Yeah, and, and one thing I noticed um, raising three kids, my oldest son is six and a half. When he was um, an infant, every single thing we bought that was made of plastic said microban on it. But I don't see that so much anymore. Well, hopefully people have actually started to think twice about that because it's really not good. And it's not good not just because it, it creates potentially creates resistance. It has all kinds of other downstream effects. I'm sure you've heard of the hygiene hypothesis. Mm-hmm, sure. Basically, you know, this idea that it's okay to play in the dirt. It's okay for kids to eat a little dirt. Not just okay, but... But positive. Yeah, but yeah, highly it, positive, right. It tunes up our, you know... I mean, the hygiene hypothesis has been going now for about 25 years, and people keep adjusting it slightly and sort of restating it. But the the the... The idea at the core of it is that if we are exposed early in our lives as our immune systems are, are learning, the, are becoming acquainted, acquainted with our environments, if we are exposed at that early point to essentially the, the microbes that our species evolved in concert with, which is like, you know, microbes in the soil and so forth, then our our immune systems do a better, they, they learn what's safe to, to tolerate and what they, what it, what they, re, what it really needs to react. Sure. Against. I like the hormetic response idea. Yeah. And so, you know, if we don't get that exposure early in our lives, then our, our immune systems go crazy whenever they see anything. And from this, we get allergy and atopic responses like, you know, eczema and things like that. So, so it's good to not be high, too hyper crazy clean. Um, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that anybody would want to be exposed to disease organisms, but soil organisms, that's probably a good thing. And so when we when people go crazy and buy these hyper you know intense antibacterial compounds, what they're um, they're not just overdoing it in terms of getting rid of things like MRSA, but they're also potentially disrupting their whole sort of personal ecology and the personal ecology of their households and their children in such a way that it's going to create negative effects years down mm-hmm. the road. But then again, aren't the Hand sanitizers, hand sanitizers, th- those have an appropriate use, right? 
Yeah, sure. And what, uh, you know, when people ask me about this, I tell them just to read the label because the simpler, uh, the simpler a hand sanitizer is, the better it is. And that's because what hand sanitizers are at their base is alcohol. And alcohol um, is as lethal to bacteria as soap, but for a different reason. You know, soap, as we discussed, it just kind of takes bacteria off your skin and washes them away. What alcohol does is basically break bacteria open. It denatures the bacterial, the proteins in the membrane. So it's kind of like hitting them over the head with a hammer. Um, they do not develop resistance to being hit over the head with a hammer. <laughs> it just, okay, right. Um, and that's really all you need. And what a lot of what's in hand sanitizers is just is the stuff that turns it into a gel that allows the alcohol to stay on our skin long enough to actually have the needed effect. But that's really all you need in there. That's the basic killing mechanism. You don't need all the extra hyper, super duper, antibacterial, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. So wash your hands. Mm -hmm. Don't pick your nose. Don't pick your nose. Um, you know, if you're in, if you have the... Um, if you're if you're in a, a hospital or you have a family member in a hospital, be aggressive in a polite way about making sure that people there have washed their hands. Yeah, not it's, just you as you're walking around. Don't just don't just foam up every time you see one of those. But go ahead and ask the ask medical people, practitioner to wash their hands. Know, it's a very don it's a thing that's simple to say and hard to do. It's very rude to in our culture. Feels rude, and it feels like you know when you're in. When you're in a, a healthcare institution, you're in a very vulnerable position and, and you feel very vulnerable, exposed and exposed. And so it's hard to say to these people whom you want to like you so they'll take care of you. It's hard to challenge them. But we really need to do that because, you know, doctors, nurses, paraprofessionals, hmm. they don't intend to make anybody sick. They go sure. into their jobs to make people well, but they have very busy, pressed jobs highly technological jobs, it's easy for them to get distracted. And sometimes the way in which they get distracted is by not washing their hands or by, you know, touching an aspect of the the hospital room and then touching the patient without cleaning their hands or gloving in between. So wash your hands, ask other people to wash their hands, you know, um, don't, don't like hyper clean your environment. And also, you know, where, where the, the sort of farming aspect of this comes in is, is if you can, if you can afford it, vote with your dollars and and try to go for products, particularly meat, that's raised without benefit of antibiotics. <laughs> that's awesome. This is right up my alley. This, is that yeah. you? You know, you are reducing the chances that there will be resistant bacteria on the meat you buy, and you're also withdrawing support from that big production system that is in that is putting antibiotic resistance back into the world now. You know, it's not antibiotic. It's important to say antibiotic resistance is not only the fault of agriculture. It is the fault of what we do in human medicine and in misusing antibiotics as well. But it it, it seems to me foolish to to say that and that agriculture is not also partially responsible. And therefore, you know, that the way and the only way in which we can talk back to agriculture is is by reevaluating our relationship to its products. Mm -hmm. I wholeheartedly agree there. That's one of my m most important things in my life is uh, sourcing our meat. Yeah, and you know, and it's hard. I don't pretend this is easy. And it's it's hard and it can be expensive. And people, you know, if they really are serious about that, they end up, I think, kind of I, changing yeah. relationship to how I they... I just allow it to be expensive and a major expense in our lives yeah. and then just adjust accordingly. 
And, the, you know, where once we start talking about then that, then, you know, that gets you into the whole kind of larger social justice aspects of our food system. Because cause then people say back to me, well, are you saying that only rich people are allowed to be protected against antibiotic resistance? And God knows I certainly don't want that to be the case, which means we just have to tune up the whole you know, the whole economics of how we produce. Sure. Well, people will take any conversation down some rat hole if you let them. <laughs> the economics of how, how we build agriculture in this country is a whole separate yeah, hours. Sure. We have a mess. And if you have, um, if you have the smarts to look into it, there, there's some simple solutions you can make in your everyday life, you know, to improve that for sure. You don't, you don't need to be a victim because you're poor. Yeah. So, you know, I have a friend coming over in a, in a little while, and he works at the Cleveland Clinic. What okay. do you think I should do when he walks in so I'm not rude to him? Should I just toss him a, a bar of soap and attack him with the garden hose? Or you right, just back away screaming unclean. <laughs> um, you could ask. I don't want to be rude. <laughs> you could ask if he like, washed his hands when he checked out and makes, you know, I, I hope he's not walking in with his scrubs on because then you have he, a whole different issue. <laughs> he always comes over with his scrubs on. No, no, no. I worry about this. I do. Um, yeah, I don't know how personal I should make this, but I've actually seen him go to his brother's house and hold his newborn baby with his scrubs on. Mm-hmm. Bad news, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really interesting conversation happening in healthcare right now about how much, uh, about whether hospitals should allow people to wear their scrubs outside. And I hear, you know, people ask me about this. It's like, you know, I, I, went, I went to the, the coffee shop next to the hospital. There were all these people standing there in scrubs. Should I be worried? And I honestly don't know what to tell them. I don't know what the science says. Um, but I would... Um, you can say you don't have to be worried, but it shouldn't be done, right? I, I would just, I would ask. I would ask what, you know... I, I would ask your friend what he thinks about that and see what he says. Well, at least we'll have something to talk about tonight. Yay. <laughs> Especially uh, anything yeah. other than sports for me yeah. is fine. Douse yourself in this 200-proof vodka. <laughs> <to me. laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, Marin, this has been an awesome hour. Thank you. Thank you. Really flattered. Thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Um uh, it's fun to, in a twisted sort of way to talk about this stuff. I mean, it's it's fun just in that I am fascinated by it, but I, I don't mean to make light of it because it's really serious. And for people that this has happened to, um, it's really bad news. But I just feel so passionately about people knowing more about this because I think it's a really underappreciated health threat. And I don't want to scare people, but I do want them to... Um, I do want them to know yeah, that... Yeah, they need to be informed, and um, the problem is it's a scary story, so it's a scary dis- bug. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. let's let people know um, where they can find out more. Okay. So um, we were talking in part about my research for the book Superbug. The full title is um, Superbug, the Fatal Menace of MRSA. It was... Um, published by Free Press, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster, and the book's website is superbugthebook.com. Um, I'm also a, um, I'm a blogger for Wired Magazine. My blog there is also called Superbug, where I talk about infectious disease and public and global health and a lot about food policy as well. Unfortunately, that has a really long URL. It's wired.com slash wired science slash superbug. Um, and, uh, yeah, they need and, to shorten that up for you, but I'll have it in the show notes. 
Okay, fair enough. And and anybody can find me at, at on Twitter. I'm uh, Marin MCK. Yeah, it was easy. Pretty easy. I just googled your name, and you all those links popped right up. <laughs> so it was pretty simple. I do have one further, one other question though. Are you still rocking that violet hair? Oh well, um, no. Sadly, it's bright red now. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't call that sad, but. I loved I loved the purple hair, and uh, in fact, I've got you know I use it because I use it for my Twitter avatar. Now, if I go somewhere, uh, like I actually was, I was at a conference recently, and I was live tweeting it, and somebody else was 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 tweeting in the same room, and he was like, he stood up and looked around. We were talking on Twitter, and then he looked around the room, and I realized he was looking for my purple hair. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> said, I'm sorry, it's red now, and he was like, Oh, there you are. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love that purple hair. I actually I got a wig uh, to match it, just um, so that if I if I have to be seen with oh purple yeah, quick hair. change, sure. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> it's like my secret identity. Well, I love it. You're a comic book hero. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually got purple hair in my second life avatar just to match. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, so you, you're a true geek. <laughs> well, I um, I'm I don't have a big Second Life presence, but somebody asked me to actually do an interview in Second Life, and so I had to build an avatar, and so we made oh, it. Okay, per- all right. Wow, that's way beyond me. <laughs> well, thanks for the the chat. This was really fun. I really appreciated it. Thank you, Marin. Talk Take to you on Twitter. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.